Welcome back to the Development by David podcast with your host, me, David McIntosh. This week, I am living 12-year-old David's dream. I get to interview a former FBI agent. I didn't know these guys even existed. i just seen them on Big Mama's House and documentary series or even in Grand Theft Auto. But now I get to speak with a former special agent. How cool is that? Today, my guest is Robin Drake. What an absolute gent. I chat with Robin about his career path, the day-to-day life of an FBI special agent, and his job working with counterintelligence. He also opens up about the time he was in New York City during 9-11 and what his work looked like during that. Tune in to learn from a behavioral expert in communication and badass Robin Drake. And before we get into the show, this week we have two sponsors, an international sponsor and a local sponsor. And you guessed it. The international sponsor is our friends over at Vibe. Whether it's their complete meal shake, their brain care, smart greens, or their line mains mushroom, they have your brain and body covered. As you're aware, I've been using the complete meal shake every single day. I've got the salted caramel and chocolate flavor. It's just a staple of my diet. You're not getting enough vitamins in. I'm not getting enough vitamins in. It's such a convenient way to have all your markers covered on the go and feel full and satiated. And it even feels like a snack. I really recommend the salted caramel and chocolate flavored. It's plant-based, but you can also have the vanilla. And when it goes to looking after your internals, and look no further than the Brain Care Smart Greens. I've been using this for maybe the last, what, 10 days now. And I found, I found such a noticeable increase in my focus, my attention span. And it's just a nice thing. Like, it's got a nice ephemeral feeling to have a green in the morning. Of course, I only back products and brands that, are aligned with the show and the reason I got Vibe on board is because of their social mission. They contribute to Mary's Meals. They're a very socially conscious organization with my friends Gordon and Rory running it from the top. All around the world you can get access to this product whether you're in Australia, Europe or the UK. Use my code D by D for 15% off. Thank you Vibe for sponsoring this podcast and I also want to introduce a new sponsor, a local sponsor that is New Life MMA gym in Maryhill, Glasgow. I met with the owner, David Galbraith, a couple of weeks ago, and I love the mission that he's on to reform and get kids from the local areas into combat sports as a way to not only boost their physical health, but their mental health through his amazing coaching. David has been a pro MMA fighter in the Glasgow scene for many of years, and now is dedicating his life to coaching young and aspiring talent. I wanted him on board because of his socially conscious mission in Glasgow, I think the two brands hold hands. If you want to start MMA in a comfortable sp- space and our inclusive environment, look no further than New Life Gym over in Mary Hill. David has you covered. Whether it's boxing, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, wrestling, Muay Thai, or just to get fit and in shape, I would totally recommend a combat sport. It's the only exercise to me that doesn't feel like exercise. It feels like a game. And the amazing coaches, including David over at New Life, make it even more enjoyable. Thank you to both sponsors for sponsoring this episode. Robin Dreek, a real former FBI secret agent, tuning in to talk to me from across the pond. How are you? I'm really well and glad, super glad to be here as I love what you do and I know all the work it takes to do it. So I'm really appreciative of it. So thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. We see FBI agents in action movies and thriller documentary series and in double agent slapstick. 
comedies, but we often forget that it's actually a real job keeping us all safe um, in our own respective country. Can I ask where the genesis of that career began? Yeah, failing at everything else. (laughs) 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 This was not my life path. (laughs) You know, I love we're talking, you know, a few minutes ago about our origin stories and mine's great. Mine's like everyone else's. This was not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an astronaut. But uh, no one told me I wasn't smart enough, so I just tried to do that and just failed. Um, so, yeah, so origin story for that goes all the way back to growing up and literally wanted to be an astronaut. We had friends of the family that was a United Airlines pilot. He flew jets off an aircraft carrier during Vietnam. He was like the coolest guy with the I Love Me room in his house was phenomenal. It was just so cool. And being with a family... That didn't have any money. I mean, my parents have never owned a home. And matter of fact, for about three or four years of my life, we lost our heating in the house where I lived in upstate New York. And so we had a start. We, we took our last $400, installed the wood-burning stove, and we had to heat our house all by wood. And we ran out of wood in January of our first year of doing that. So um, we're chopping wood and, and keeping the house warm all winter long. And I remember every morning... And this was when I was in seventh grade, so probably 12, 13 years old. I mean, I used to get up to do, I had multiple jobs. I was a paper boy, which in up and down hills, and there's a long, you had to get before 30 in the morning before school. And all winter long, deep snow, deep cold. And I remember I used to have to get up before we started the stove in the morning. I literally had to chisel uh, the ice off the inside of the door so I could open it, so I could get out to start delivering papers. And so that's how cold the house was inside. So yeah, so from there, I wanted to go to the Naval Academy because it was a free education because I wanted to serve. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be a Navy pilot. This was before Top Gun, the first one, came out. So when that movie came out, I was really angry because now everyone's competing against me to get in because everyone <laughs> wanted to do the same thing. But I had to take a standardized test like seven times. It's called a Scholastic Aptitude Test, the SATs in, in the States, to have a high enough score to even get an application to the Naval Academy. So it took me an extra year to get in. I took that test seven times. I mean, I, I did okay in school, but I wasn't big academically, but I was good. And so it took me an extra year to get in the Naval Academy. And you don't let someone who tried so hard like that, that had a, that, that takes an extra year to get into major in aerospace engineering. That was like a disaster. So I, I failed out of aerospace engineering, went into political science just so I could major in graduation. My eyes went to 2030 back then for vision, which was uncorrectable. Now they're 2020, so don't even ask me. I think it was just a bad medical examiner. So I couldn't go fly. Um, I didn't want to be in the Navy. I wanted to be in the Marine Corps then, so I kind of shifted, went to Marine Corps. So I got out of the Naval Academy, graduated, went in the Marine Corps, and then I did five years active duty in the Marine Corps. I got out of captain. My last place I was at in the Marine Corps was at Paris Island where we uh, trained recruits at boot camp. I was a company commander there. And we had an FBI recruiter come down and says, I think Marine Corps officers make great FBI agents. And if you come with me, I'll help you get in. And I'm like, okay, that sounds good. Uh, so I literally tried it and I got in. I had no idea what I was going to do. I got assigned to the New York City field office in Manhattan. And uh, I bumped into some people before I got assigned a squad. And they said, hey, why don't you try to get on our squad? I said, what do you do? And they said, we work counterintelligence. I said, what's that? And they said, well, we specifically try to recruit Russian military intelligence officers that are at the United Nations and they're spying on our country. I said, huh, that sounds pretty cool. I'll try that. And there you go. That's how I got into it. 
Wow. <laughs> I've had the opportunity to maybe hear 85, 86 Genesis stories, but this one is remarkably unique. Reflecting on the kind of tail end of your tale there, your job was to recruit uh, enemy spies who were spying on your own country. How that must seem like that, that seems like the most incredible, heart, uh, most intense, most difficult task to convince someone who's working against you to work for you. What tactics did must? What tactics did you deploy to convince uh, enemy spy to work for your nation? I, I can't imagine a, a job as difficult as that. So. Great question. You don't use any tactics because you can never convince anyone to do anything. You have to inspire them to want to. And in order to find the ones that already have it in their mind that this is what they need to do to solve a problem in their life, that's what the job was. The job was because I was, I was just, you, you said it perfectly. When I first was assigned to do this, is that all right? Your job is to recruit intelligence officers. My first reaction was, well, how the hell do you do that? And what the secret is, is you don't do that. The secret is, just like everything in life, I've been just like you, just like everyone listening that is trying to figure life out. If you come from not much, you've recruited allies your entire life. That's my literally my catchphrase and everything is I, in order to get the Naval Academy, I had to recruit allies. In order to get enough money to buy clothes so I could go to school, I had to recruit allies. I had to recruit neighbors to hire me as to cut their grass. I had to recruit people allow me to be a paper boy. I had to recruit all these people in my life to help me do X, Y, and Z. And so I'd been recruiting allies my entire life. So recruiting a spy is the same thing. And, it's, and, and in reality, we don't recruit anyone. We're forging relationships and healthy relationships and we're forging trust. And the way we do that is the same thing when you're trying to recruit a spy is you're not recruiting a spy. You're identifying challenges, priorities, and pain points in someone else's life, figuring out what those things are, and then seeing what you can do to help alleviate those challenges, priorities, and pain points. What can you do to make their life a little bit better? What can you do to make their job a little bit easier? What can you do to be a resource for them and things that are important to them? And when you do those things, and they can trust you with transparency and vulnerability, honesty, and openness, we might have a relationship that can then move forward together. And so my job, inspiring someone to cooperate with me instead of spying for their own country was the same thing. I was trying to identify individuals that had priority challenges and pain points that aligned with the resources that I had. What were they part, typically? Um, elder parents that had healthcare issues back in Moscow or wherever it was, a, a better education system for their children, a future for their families that wasn't under Putin because they are proud Russians. They um, didn't like the way the oligarchs are running the country. So at those types of typical challenges and pain points that we all have. And so what are they willing to reciprocate? with things that I need in order to do that. So in order to offer my resources for them in those areas, there's things that are priorities for me to protect the national security of the United States and our allies. I worked with the UK a lot. I worked with our, our partners overseas a lot on, because we all are, you know, we're all in this together as no matter what the movies say. Um, so you're always doing those types of things. And so as I share the things that are important to protect the national security of the United States and our NATO allies, they then decide whether that's something they can do to service their pain points and challenges. But generally, 
most of the time, if not all the time, they've already had in their mind what they wanted to do for many, many years, and they prepared themselves to do just that. So it's just aligning yourself and putting yourself in their line of sight so they can find you and so they can test, are you the one? Are you the one that you they can trust with their life and their family's life and their entire legacy of their family to keep them safe while they're solving the biggest problems and challenges that they'll ever face in their lives? Incredible. And to shine the light back on your story, joining the FBI, how did you then navigate that hierarchy? Did you have to use effective communication um, to find your way up that one labyrinth? Greatest question ever, because most of my time was strategizing how to recruit allies and my bosses to let me do the things that required doing. Because human beings were all exceptionally predictable. And this is how we are. We're all going to act in our own best interest in terms of safety, security, and prosperity for ourselves and our families. And what's really predictable is we're, we only say yes and go along with things that make us feel safe. And the problem, and you work in the world of counterintelligence and recruitments and all these things, it's very innovative. You have to be out in front. You have to be entrepreneurial. You have to be proactive in things. And proactivity and innovation typically does not make people feel safe. And so when you're trying to inspire a boss to say yes to an operation that might undermine their career from their point of view, getting to yes from them can be a great challenge. And so first you had to communicate with your bosses to show them and demonstrate to them through your actions, words, and deeds that saying yes to you was going to be a help to them and make them safer in what they're trying to do with their careers. Then you get the yes. Then you have the opportunity to try to do it with the person you're trying to recruit. So yeah, it's a it's a very dynamic, human focused endeavor in life, no doubt. Were there any aspects of your earlier life, your humble beginnings, that helped you propel, or maybe in the opposite, held you back through climbing those ranks? Yeah, you did great work. Great questions. Um, everything everything held me back and helped me at the same time. So people like us, when we grew up with a lot of grit, a lot of resilience, a lot of tenacity, all those things that make us extremely successful in being able to survive because we are literally in survival mode for so long and survival mode makes us be able to thrive eventually. But it's also very me focused. It's very center focused because we're not consciously thinking about, I have to recruit allies. We're just doing it for survival mode. So you had the reps of doing it without realizing what you're doing. And so for me, all these things we're talking about are deep leadership. When I was in the Marine Corps, when you're recruiting confidential human sources for the FBI, bosses, it's all leadership. It's all moving a group and a team towards a destination with you as the point person. The problem is earlier life with grit, resilience, and tenacity makes you very me-focused. But these leadership is about being other-focused. And so I needed to balance that dichotomy out. I needed to learn how to reverse that optic and reverse the language from being me-centric to other-centric. And I, I tell this story often. My humbling moment in the Marine Corps, the first really profound one was when I was ranked dead last out of all the second lieutenants in my first duty station. And I was like, that's weird. I didn't get it. I was a popular guy because popular people generally are, look at me, look at me, look how funny I am, look how entertaining I am, look gregarious and outgoing. That's me. But that's very me-centered. Leadership is being about other-centered, being other-focused. So I didn't have the language built in to do that. 
And so when I was ranked last, I go to my rating officer, my major, and I asked him, I said, what am I doing wrong? And he said, well, that's easy. Just be a better leader. Didn't understand what the hell he's saying because I thought I was because I was popular. And, he's, and I said, I don't get it. How do I do that? And he goes, that's easy also. You need to make it about everyone else but yourself. Foreign words to a guy that thought he was, like we all do, when someone's given us an aha moment or humbling moment in life, we don't get it because in here, internally, we think we're a good person and we are good people. But the way the world will sometimes see it is incongruent with that because our behaviors that are learned from earlier ages. And so what he couldn't tell me was these four things. And these are the four major key takeaways that I love sharing because they were the things that took me so long to understand and learn. But when you can do and incorporate at least one, if not multiple of these four things in everything you say, everything you do, everything you write, everything in life, it reverses the focus from yourself and makes it about someone else. It inspires them to want to cooperate, inspires them to want to trust you, inspires them to say, hey, this person is good for me in my life. And, and as my new friend Joshua Medcalf says in one of his books, he wrote the book on uh, Chop Wood, Carry Water. What he says in his books is, think about the person that you love to watch come through the door because you can't wait to see them. And then ask yourself, are you that person as well? And so it's these things. Number one, seek the thoughts and opinions of others instead of blabbering on about yours. Two, talk in terms of their priorities, challenges, and pain points in life instead of blathering on about yours. Three, validate them non-judgmentally. And what that means is be deeply, deeply curious about discovering who they are for the purpose of just being present for them without judging. And finally, four, empowering them with choices. And so when you do one of those four things, the entire shift goes from you to them. Their ancient primal brain starts rewarding them with dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, all those pleasure centers that are firing. Basically, it makes us feel good. Think about the people you love having a conversation with because you just feel like a million bucks after that conversation. I guarantee you they're doing one of those things very, very well. And most likely, the thing they're doing well is they're asking you questions about you. They're not judging what you're saying, and they're following up to find out even more. They're being deeply curious. Is there a wrap around those four principles of trust? Not trust, but tr sorry, tr truism. I, I guess you can't outlay those four principles with what else telling a lie because it would come across as insincere and perhaps manipulation. Does truth underpin all those four um, modalities? 100%. So the bedrock of trust for me is really simple. Transparency, vulnerability, honesty. I'm the So recruiting spies in that hooky spooky spy world, as I call it, I worked in. I did all I could to strategize how to be honest, how to be open, transparent, and vulnerable. And then when you combine that with competency, so I could actually follow through on the things I said I could do to keep you safe, that's when trust ensues. Because when people don't know what you're talking about, if red flags are going off in so when someone has a red flag off or they feel cre or they get that creepy feeling from someone, what's happening is there's incongruence between what someone is saying and their nonverbal behavior. Because what's in here in their heart and their mind and what their agenda is, is incongruent with what's coming out of their mouth. That gives us that creepy feeling. And so when you get that red flag off, absolutely. And so in order to avoid the creepy feeling, so you can be sincere, can be organic, can be genuine. You need to actually feel the words that are coming out of your mouth. You need to be truly transparent. You need to be truly vulnerable. 
you need to own it when something goes sideways. But at the same time, in order to inspire someone to cooperate and inspire someone to partner with you and to recruit an ally, you need to be very competent. So you have to do a lot of homework in order to be that. Given you're so hyper aware of all these facets of communication, has it ever been detrimental to the personal relationships that you have? Nothing but positive, actually. <laughs> um, towards relationships, it's really strong and good. For myself, it's it, it tends to be a little harmful sometimes. We all, all of us have um, powerful negative self-talk. And because the more aware you become, the more I consume, the more information I consume, the more I talk to people, engage people, I always will reflect after every conversation and think in terms of what could I have done better? What could I have said better? When was I too self-centered? When I was too focused on myself, did I do something wrong? I mean, I'm always constantly replaying the tapes in my head to see what I could have done better for someone else. And so the more you become aware of every little nooks and crannies of seeing I call it seeing the code behind the matrix. <laughs> um, the more, the more you can fall into a trap of negative self-talk. So I'd say relationship-wise, it it helps a lot with folks, but at the same time, it, if you don't manage it, it can be harmful to yourself. The four key principles that you outlaid, can you still deploy them over, um, like digital communication, whether it's email or text message or even phone call? Hundred percent, absolutely. Think about it. Just when reaching out to someone for the first time, I always like to start out with the validation of their time because time is the most important thing people have that they're very unwilling to share a lot of times, especially if they think you might be a phishing scam or a, or a cold call or something. And so you, understanding them, speaking in terms of what's important to them. And the big thing is empowering them with choice, I, you know, especially if you're doing something over virtual and they don't know you that well yet, empowering them with choice about how to respond, if they even want to respond, and also empowering them with, hey, if you never want me to contact you again, just let me know and I'll make a note to do that as well. So you're given options all the all the way because I'd always rather work with someone that is willingly engaging with 120% effort and only work with three people than 100 people that I've manipulated into cooperating with me reluctantly that only give me 5% of their effort and it's it's full of skepticism. So I don't even bother. I just, I'm completely upfront. Here's what I'm looking for. Here's what I'm hoping to do. Here's what I think you are looking for because I did a lot of research. Let me know if I'm off on this. And at the same time, let me know where you think I might be a resource for you. If you think we can cooperate and have a great relationship where we might be able to take the next step forward, let me know. If not, also let me know because I do not want to bother you and be a waste of your time. This has been so insightful so far. Because my presumption is that we've been practicing and I guess learning communication since we were like three years old. Um, there'll be listeners of this podcast who have been communicating for decades, probably longer than I've ever been alive. What are some people's misconceptions or bad habits when it comes to communicating? It kind of goes to the quote I have on the front of my um, podcast page, and that is, it's not about how you make people feel about you that matters. It's how you make them feel about themselves. A lot of times, especially when we're starting in any job or any industry or we're starting in any place in life, we think we have to impress people with who we are. We think titles and positions mean something. We think that we have to give the perfect elevator pitch, as they call it, to say why I'm so important, why I matter. It has nothing to do with that. No one cares. 
all that matters to everyone else is what can you do in terms of them? What can you do to be of value to them? What can you do to make their life easier? The if if I had known what I know now when I was 20 years old, the the only advice I'd ever give myself, because a 20 year old me was I thought it was in order to get ahead in life, I had to make myself look good. I had I had to be successful. I had to recruit a spy. I had to be the greatest leader. All these things was I, I, I. If I could have shifted one thing instead of trying to make myself look good, if I had taken the time to figure out everyone else's job around me, not judging what they thought was important and seeing what I could do to make their job and life easier, that's what would have been the gold. That's what I would have done hands down. And that's why I share with everyone. Do that. You want to be valued by people. You want opportunities in life. You want to recruit allies. Be the person people want around. Why would they want you around? You just made their life easier. You just made their life better. You just made that little thing that was a that a bugger in their back. You made it this much easier for them to accomplish it. Who wouldn't want that around? Very right. And not to be so selfish and how ironic that is. We both have podcasts. How can I deploy that in the world of guest outreach? How can I get the people that I want to speak to on my podcast by deploying that exact tactic? Kind of like you do with me. First, you have to ask. You don't fear the ask. You only get no or you get ignored if you don't ask. And the big thing I think to try to do always is talk in terms of who you're serving and that you are you have an audience. I thought you did a great job with me saying, hey, here's an audience that I have that could really be benefited by the knowledge you have to share. If that's something that you think you have time for, that'd be fantastic. If not, I completely understand. So what you just did was you talked in terms of someone else's pain point. You said the information that I have could be value to someone else. And if I have a service mentality, which is a, which is the value of your podcast, you're serving an audience, it can be congruent. So that's what I was always looking for too. That's just what I would do. And if someone can resonate with that and they have the time, great. If not, okay, it wasn't meant to be and move on because you never know what you're going to get. I love it, Robin. So how would you personally define trust? A few things. I, two two areas, really. Um, one was what I kind of came up with, with predictability. I think when people are very predictable, you can trust what they're going to do. And trust that for me, it doesn't come down, down to morals and ethics. It comes down to predictable behavior. And the other I, that I use all the time now, and uh, Dr. Abby Morano came up with it, a good friend of mine and the show, um, nonverbal expert, amazing skill set. She says, uh, trust is about feeling safe. And so I think when you can be predictable and you make people feel safe, that's where trust is born. I'm trying to think of like a everyday example or everyday scenario where someone would need to deploy those two prongs. How could you adapt that into the world of dating? For example, approaching a guy or a girl at a bar, how could you provide them with those two facets? Well, it's going to be individually specific to individuals that you're approaching and think to yourself because just so in the world of recruiting a spy, which is the highest level of dating, maybe because you're trying to forge a relationship on trust and trying to get someone to come on board and cooperate, you're painting this beautiful art piece just for them, just this one person. It's not a line that you use on everyone because every individual is different because everyone in every individual is going to need to feel safe a little bit differently in a little bit situation in a different venue. You don't know what that is until you start thinking about the palette upon which you're going to try to create your art. 
And so that palette, once you identify what it is you want to paint and what it is the art you want to create, you have to think of in terms of what does this person need from their perspective, which is empathy, not my perspective, not me guessing at it. What do they need from their perspective to feel safe with saying yes? That could be completely different for every human being. And if you don't know, I think the greatest thing you can do is be transparent with the fact that you don't know because transparency equals trust. Say, listen, I would love to ask you out on a date. I have no idea why you'd say yes. I have no idea what I could do to make you feel more comfortable saying yes. But if you're willing to give it a shot, I'll do all I can to make it worth your while. Robin, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done that in many, many years. I've been married over 30 years. And so mm -hmm. I don't know. But that's, I would just, because what you're doing there, you made it about them. You're transparent and you empower them with choice. There seems to be a parallel between being transparent or admitting that you don't know and almost like self-deprecation. I know that's a huge component of mm -hmm. what you teach. Why is self-deprecation a good technique to deploy uh, when trying to kind of win someone over in that aspect? So self-deprecation or self-deprecating humor is a, is a great skill to have because it demonstrates that you're self-aware enough and confident enough to be vulnerable. Because only only self-confident people can use self-deprecating humor in a genuine, sincere way, not to be used as a tool. Because if you're using it as a tool, it's a manipulation technique. And you also have to balance it with you can't overdo it. Like everything in life is a dichotomy. So self-deprecation also have to be balanced with confidence. Because uh, self-deprecation requires humility. And humility and confidence always need to be in balance. It's a dichotomy. It's very challenging to maintain. Because you, if you over-self-deprecate, then people are going to think you're an idiot and then never want to do anything with you. But if you do it as well as demonstrating where you are competent and you know that you're competent in a certain area and you bring that skill set forward, what you're dealing with then is someone highly self-aware. And it's like when you do a job interview, one of those two trickiest questions you have in a job interview that really require someone to really nail, I think, really well is the first one, which is a simple one, was what's your strengths? And when you're answering what your strengths are, you think about the skill set you have, the confidence you have in a certain skill set. But you have to answer it in terms of how that's going to solve a particular pain point or priority of the person hiring you. And the second question is when they ask you what your weaknesses are, what I'm looking for is full transparency on what you think you suck at with honesty. And then I want to hear what you're doing about it because there's someone that's willing to share, hey, I suck at this. I suck at interpersonal communications because I tend to make it too much about me. But. I got a couple of teachers, mentors, guys in my life that I actually am being coached by. I constantly take feedback for this and I'm going to willing to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm looking for feedback from you so that in those moments when I might deviate from my, my goal of trying to be really, really a good communicator, that you'll let me know. So what you just did was you were transparent. You made me feel safe that you're going to, if I can, if I can trust that you're going to tell me what you are horrible at, you're going to tell me everything. And so I can trust you to be transparent and then you become predictable. It seems to deploy that you must have a level of or an ability to remove or adapt your ego. I've heard you use this term ego suspension. Yeah. Could we share that what that is with the listener? Yeah, ego suspension. None of these, none of these things can happen unless you can suspend your ego. To put it more simply, I think, than just suspending ego, it's Letting go of our insecurities the best we can because we all have them. That's, you know, 
it's one of the things that is a universal human beings. We're all insecure about something. And what that gets in that basically our ego gets wounded, it gets bruised. And so having a healthy ego, but not an inflated ego is really important in these things. And so letting go of that need to be right, the need to be correct, the need that we think we have to prove ourselves to someone else to be accepted by the tribe so we can survive. That's literally why our egos exist. Our egos, well, there's a lot of reasons, but the layman's terms is we want to be part of a tribe because our ancient tribal brain says, if I'm not part of a tribe, I'm going to die. And so when we feel like we're being ostracized from the tribe in any way, we get defensive, we feel insecure, and we're going to battle our way back in. That's our ego. Because we think we're going to get back in the tribe by say, look at me, look at me, I'm really important to the tribe. Rather than telling the tribe, hey, that you are really awesome as a tribe, and here's how I'm going to make your job easier as a tribe. Are there any deviations to that rule? Are there any times, or have there been any any times in your personal circumstances where you've had to deploy the eagle contrary to that that technique? Another good question. You know, the the only thing that fits rapidly in there is. One of the things you want to do when you're developing a a strong relationship with someone is to kind of match their tempo, become congruent with them is a better way to put it. Because matching and and the problem is I don't like giving it a label and meaning because then it sounds like it's contrived and it's not. But what's happened is you're matching tempo, you're matching language, you're matching types of dialogue they're having. If someone is more direct and someone's more in your face and someone's more assertive, you know, you want to make sure that you inflate your, your self-confidence more to kind of come at them, not come at them, to dialogue that same way so they can see you as, as, as someone they can communicate with. Because that's all you're trying to do is demonstrate that you can communicate with me. So you're always kind of adjusting your tempo and adjusting your method of communication to match. I wouldn't say you have to increase your ego on that. You just have to be aware of it. The other area too is when you're dealing with someone. This I only in law enforcement do you tend to do this more, although corporate America too you do. And that is when you if you start dealing with someone with high um, psychopathy, that they lack empathy, um, they're going to try to use your ego against you, and your and your insecurities against you as a pure predator would. And so you just have to be very aware of it then as well. Those are probably the two biggest areas. But in in general though, I'd say you don't. Ego suspension, I'd say ego awareness is a better way to put it. <laughs> I love it. And communication spans beyond just the brain to mouth function. It's also your kind of nonverbal cues. How does one start to become aware of how they're communicating with their, their limbs and their smile and their eyes and uh, their posture and such? Best way to become aware of your nonverbals is look at the world around you and how they respond to you. Do you make people feel comfortable or do you make them feel uncomfortable? You know, so a good friend of mine, Mark Bowden, nonverbal expert, beautiful, beautiful observation. He gave a great analogy for this. So nonverbals, simply put, is the feeling of comfort feeling of versus the feeling of discomfort. And you would like your nonverbals to make people feel comfortable. And so what does comfort look like in a, in a really simple way to do it? Picture yourself, you're outside. It's, and this is his analogy, so I loved it. It's a very, very cold day, snowy or cold driving rain. I mean, it is miserable outside. And you get this, and you get the chance, and you're all bundled up, and you're wet, and you're frozen. But you go inside, and you have a nice, 
big roaring fire and you just melt. You're like, oh, and you find they're able to shed your layers off you of, of the wet, horrible, cold clothes and you put on a nice pair of warm pajamas and you got a hot cup of cocoa and you're just sitting by this warm fire and you just open up. That is what comfort is as opposed to the way you felt outside and you're cold and you're, everything's closed in and condensed and crunched in like this, that's discomfort. And so just if you can think in terms of those things, when you are interacting with people, what do they look like? Do they look like when they see you that they're going to sit by the warm fire or are you making them sit outside in the cold? What are some of the corrective measures that you can take to change that? Be aware. Awareness is always the first thing we can do in any situation and be conscious of it and think in terms of, all right, and then to self-assess. The self-assess is really challenging. It can be. So that's why having someone in our lives, which I call a loving critic, is really, really important. And this is someone who cares deeply, deeply about us and is there to give us loving guidance when asked but isn't necessarily tied to our outcome so they can maintain that objectivity for us as well. And so asking someone like that in our lives because we recruited allies can be a great resource to say, hey, when I walk into a room, how do people respond? And if it's negative, what am I doing? Ask them the what questions, not why. What questions are very good? What makes people be very specific? And that's in everything. So when you ask them a what question, what specifically can I do differently? What are you seeing? What do you think other people are seeing? What is incongruent with what I'm feeling? And so if you start noticing that you have an incongruence between what you're saying and what you're feeling here, we need to do some deeper reflection on, on what's going on inside. Because when you actually have a deep sense of calmness and presence, it will be congruent. And if it's incongruent, there's something going on you need to do some deeper work on. I've heard in the corporate world terms such as like the power stance or I've been mean, I've been given advice like never approach someone face on when when having a sensitive conversation stand just off to the right are these are these embodiments of conversation true should these be uh techniques to the techniques to be deployed during um conversation sure they can be very helpful but let's look at the cause of why they're why they're useful so all those things you just mentioned about how we approach someone how we stand in the corporate world What's the, what's the goal? What are you trying to achieve? Making someone feel what? Comfortable. And safe. And safe. Yeah. So think to yourself as you enter in a room, as you're entering a situation, what can I do? As you're reading, assessing, what can I do to make people feel safe with me? Can you remember a time in your own special agent career where you've had to deploy those tactics? Every moment. There wasn't a time yeah. when I didn't. Yeah, every moment. <laughs> making my bosses feel safe, making my coworkers feel safe, making the people I'm working with feel safe 100% all the time. And it, and it shifts too. And it's also in the moment. People, As people are communicating, dialoguing with you, there's a lot of things going through their heads. There's a lot of things that you're saying, a lot of things that you're doing that are going to that are gonna vary their response to you like this rapidly. And so you have to be, just because someone felt safe with you one second doesn't mean they're going to feel safe with you the next second. So if you're reading a shift in that behavior, in other words, if, it, if all of a sudden they go from looking like they're sitting by the warm fire to looking like they just got shoved outside, you did something to cause that. You need to think hard about that and readjust yourself to make them feel safe again. 
I can't believe I'm asking a former FBI secret agent this question, but does how you shake someone's hand matter? How you interact with everyone matters all the time. And so you, to me, it's always about matching. It's always about reciprocating what's being offered. And so, yeah, some people have that, that soft, <clears throat> uh, creepy handshake, <laughs> but I'm judging because I don't, <laughs> but it's not creepy to them. It's just a handshake to them. So understanding what it is to the other person is really important. And so you want to match if that's what they're offering. If they're not offering a hand, they want to do a fist bump. We're going to do a fist bump. Want to do an elbow bump. Some people don't want to do anything at all. If you're not sure what people want, ask. Seriously, I mean, so if it's one of those things that if it's no one on first meeting, if someone is typically going out and reaching out to shake hands and all of a sudden you go to reach a shake a hand and there's nothing offered, you're like, huh, oh, I apologize so much. I'm used to shaking hands on first contact. Is that something you're not comfortable with? Especially after COVID, I've seen a prevalence of people asking or saying, oh, by the way, I'm a hugger before they go in for a hug. Um, that, that didn't seem to be something I recognized as much pre-COVID, but especially post-COVID, I've noticed that quite a lot. Yeah, because what you're doing is you're empowering people with knowledge to make them feel safe in what you're about to do. And that way, it lets them know, say, hey, here's what I am about, here's what I'm about to do, and if you're not comfortable with it, let me know. Oh, I love it. Does the same go for speed of speech? Must you match someone's level of or, or, or acceleration of voice? Should you Tempo. be on the same level? Yeah. Absolutely. It's really important to do that. Um, you always want to be a slightly slower if you can to the person you're talking to just so they can clearly understand what it is you're trying to say. Again, it's not about taking advantage of a situation ever. It's about being clear in communication so that there's never a miscommunication because the whole point of all interactions have really good, clear communication so that people can understand exactly what it is you're trying to say and convey. So absolutely. That's very important. To continue this cycle of uh, pragmatic insights for the listener, how does the everyday Joe or the average Joe, how do they implement like a communication training routine into their day-to-day -day life if they want to, they're listening to these insights, but they want to put it into practice? Do you have any insights or frameworks or training programs for them? Well, you have <laughs> training programs, sure. I think the easiest thing for a program is to go to my website and take the free course. Um, I, my, I have a free keys to communication course. It's on Udemy and there's a link on my website. And if you go to my website, peopleformula.com, it'll pop up. It is, it is literally a no upsell course. It is Udemy. I don't collect emails from it. So you don't get added to my email list. I wish I could, um, because it would be great. Um, but it's no upsell. You get a link to my podcast. The only thing I promote on the course is, Hey, if you want more examples of this, just check out the podcast, but it's 40 minutes of me walking through the four keys of communication. And then just do all you can to be present. Try to engage the world the best you can without an agenda. So if you're going to be in a meeting, if you're gonna be in interaction, if you're gonna go just meet a friend, let go of an agenda, let go of your time, let go of everything. Hear every word being spoken, and become curious to something that kind of spikes out of the normal. Explore that because if it comes out of someone's mouth, it's important to them. Explore and be curious about what is interesting to them. And that's just start practicing that and using those four keys of communication. Don't be in a hurry to tell your story because no one really cares. <laughs> to go back onto your story, what are some of the highs that working in the uh, FBI, what, what are some of the highs that that's afforded you? 
retirement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty pragmatic as well. <laughs> it's a good retirement. I like uh, it. I um, can imagine. I got. To, no, I did. I for dealing with the bureaucracy was the horror. It was a pain. It was took a lot of skill. I learned more about human interaction by dealing with bureaucracy than trying to recruit spies, but it allowed me to do righteous work. That's what I call it. And, and that is protecting the, the lives and, and wherewithal of my country and our, our allies around the world. And whether you're an ally or not, just protecting humans against suffering. I, that's all I do in everyday life is what can we do better to make life a little bit better for those people around us? I may be wrong, but I believe I heard or read that you were in Manhattan working during the 9-11 attack yep. and you were close by. Could you share uh, with the listener that tale, uh, that unfortunate tale? Yeah, um, my office in Manhattan was about five or six blocks away from the World Trade Center. Matter of fact, right here. Right here, this is a piece of glass from the World Trade Center. Because, oh my gosh. Yep. That's, that's so, yeah, I was six blocks away. Um, I saw the first plane hit the North Tower. I was on the street getting a cup of coffee. I went up to my floor where my, my office was on the 25th floor, and I'm watching it live from about six or seven blocks away, very, very close, watching the fire and the smoke spread from the like the 80th, 80th, 88th floor, like they said. And I, I started seeing bodies and people jumping from the North Tower. I counted eight people jump before the South Tower got hit. So I saw eight people jump from my vantage point, which was northeast of the towers. And as a second fireball came through the South Tower, and I had an engine from the plane that hit the South Tower land about 30 feet from my car that was parked on a street. And yeah, all chaos broke out then. So um, very close doing a lot of non... We didn't have a day off after that until December. So 12 hour shifts, uh, six in the morning to midnight for me and not including our commute time, seven days a week, a lot of, lot of work. <laughs> Can I ask what the day in the life looked like during those 12 hour shifts? That what was were you trying to all solve? over the place. You never knew what you're going to do. There was days when I was at, a, uh, at the landfill, it's called fresh kills landfill. That's where I got the piece of glass where you're literally given a steel rake and we're talking miles of debris of just concrete and rebar that you were given a steel rake and say, look for fingers and toes. You're looking for remains. You're looking for artifacts to give back family members. You're looking for anything you could find for a family grieving. You, We had days when we're um, conducting leads where we're where we had a name hit from a flight. Uh, I was going on aircraft once the airspace started to open up again with name hits on the watch list. I mean, there was interviewing people all over the city because you cover every lead. Anytime a, a tip is called in, you cover it. Even, I mean, the first, I had lead number three on the investigation of, of this when lead number three was individuals saw a plane flying down the Hudson river. You know how many people saw a plane flying down the Hudson river that day? <laughs> Millions. And we covered every single one of them. So it was a lot. My God. <sighs> Again, in life there was no there was no normal day. Every day was different. It's the second time I've I've said this in this podcast. But despite interviewing eighty plus people on this show, I've not heard I've not heard an account just like that, Robin. That's for sure. Everyone's on a different journey, and they're Too all different, right. aren't they? <laughs> Too right. And that's exactly why I do this. If I were to make it a bit more lighthearted on that note, 
are there any maybe podcast guests or celebrities that you consume that you look at their communication style and think they would make a great special agent? Oh, who make a great special. I think you do really good for one. Um, very present. You have great questions. You're going for backstories, which are really important to understand where someone's coming from. So any of them that have that kind of skill set, uh, I have a good friend, Jordan Harbinger. He has a Jordan Harbinger show. Uh, he's very, very good at it. Um, I mean, mo a lot of podcasters, if and once you get above a certain number of interviews you do, and if you edit yourself, you get better <laughs> and you get better than most, most people in law enforcement because you're doing more interviews than most people in law enforcement are doing. You do more interviewers <laughs> than, than people hiring do. And when you're trying to do it better every day and your audience depends on how well you do it, plus all the guests you get on and you're only going to get a good guests on if you actually do a good job. See what I mean? It's all kind of circle around the same place. So I'd say anyone that is continuing to do a podcast that has the number of reps that you have, they're going to be, they'd be good. That's awesome. Um, my ego is somewhat inflated now. I'm going to have to do some exercises to deflate that and that's suppress called, it and, and suspend it. And that's called validation. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there, Robin. Robin, honestly, uh, before I hit record, I said to you, uh, as a kid, I never pictured a future whereby I would be speaking to someone like you. And this podcast has been so much fun, so insightful. And um, I can't believe I've had two mic drop moments during the podcast. It's, it's what we do here. I'm really appreciative of your time, Robin. If people want to get in touch with you um, to share their thanks for this podcast or find out more about what you do, where's the best place I can sign post people? Piece of cake, peopleformula.com, all one word, peopleformula.com. On that is my, my podcast is on there, all my offerings. I do coaching. I'm a keynote speaker. That's a big thing I do. And so, but the most important thing, there's a lot of free stuff there. So my podcast is free. My articles are free. Um, there's lots of content on there that you can upsell, you know, but if you want to take free stuff and just learn more about this, um, just go there and you'll get everything you need at, at, at whatever level you want to, as, as I call it, death by Robin, you can have them as much as me in your life as you want. <laughs> too much too. Oh, my books. I've written three books. So you can get my books through there too. They're on all on Amazon as well. So as much as you want of Robin, believe me, there's plenty. Too much. Some of the listeners' family, friends, and romantic partners will be absolutely jealous with the amount of airtime uh, they're going to consume of you now after all this free resource, Robin. Thank you so much. You betcha. Use it for a gift and say you spent a lot of money on it. There you go. <laughs> it's my sister's birthday next week. Good idea. It's a great idea. <laughs> Robin, I really, really enjoyed it. It's been a highlight of my, my year. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, you betcha. My pleasure. And for those listening, one last thing. Make sure you hit subscribe, hit like, and share this uh, with all your friends and neighbors and colleagues because he puts in a lot of time and effort to make this a great show for you. Goes out and gets great people on board to share knowledge to make your life a little bit better. So show some love. Thanks. Thanks, Robin. You did my job for me. <laughs>